0: Welcome to Writer's Block Live, a joint venture from Europodfilter.com, and Anastamo's interdisciplinary journal where we hear the work of poets, historians, scientists, and all-around artists and dig in to find the story behind the words. I'm your host, Mike Gravano, and you may recognize me from the superhero hour hour. Or maybe, just maybe, we got into an argument online and after hours of going back and forth and researching this and that, we both gave up exhausted because what's the fucking point of arguing online anyway? Regardless, welcome to the show. I'm I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to see you all this summer. Just got a little cooler, which is nice. It was an oven in here like an hour ago, and it's cooled down for all you podcasters there. Just turn your car heat way up and pretend you're here, but not anymore. I'm excited about tonight because it's an all Moontide Press billing. Moontide Press is a killer SoCal-based poetry press. They put out... Great poets, great work, full disclosure, I'm in an anthology that you should check out, Lullaby of Teeth, it's the first time I've gotten to put my own stuff on this, but let's just dig right in. Your first poet of the evening is Daniel McGinn. Daniel's the author of The Moon, My Lover, My Mother, and the Dog, and A Thousand Black Umbrellas. He's a native of Southern California who's led workshops at Half Off Books, the Orange County Rescue Mission, charter schools, and poetry venues. Daniel received his MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts and has been married to the poet and painter Laura McGinn for 41 years. Give it up for Daniel.
1: Making marriage work. Well, Sometimes I plan a set. I didn't plan a set tonight because Eric said just read from the new book. Actually, it's my new book, but there's been two other books since this came out in March. So February, March, this press is moving fast, and I'm really proud to be a part of it. Uh, Everything I've seen Eric put out has been excellent. Um, So uh, I guess I should just shut up and read. Okay. The Beatles or the Beach Boys. That is the question. My grandson and I are listening to Pet Sounds, Gavin's favorite CD by the Beach Boys. It's the one where Brian Wilson sits alone in his room, singing about how God only knows what he'd be without her. I've always wondered if he ever had her. The Beach Boys sang songs about watching girls from a distance. Wouldn't it be nice? We're on our way to Huntington Beach, and Gavin is disappointed we didn't get there when the sun was coming up because the sun is the planet that's closest to the earth, and it controls the waves because the sun is closer to the ocean, then the waves get bigger. Everybody knows that. Gavin's 10 years old, and we get into the heated discussion about who was the best band ever. It comes down to the Beatles or the Beach Boys. I try to explain to them that the Beatles sang to girls, and girls understood that they weren't afraid to talk to them. And everybody could see that it was only a short distance between I want to hold your hand and when I touch you, I feel happy inside. There's only so much I can explain to him. He's still a kid. I don't think we're ready to have that talk about the Rolling Stones or about how quickly life is going to change. I do need to tell him that life is about balance, for every Lennon, there's a McCartney. We all fall in love, get acquainted with sorrow, and yearn for yesterday, but seriously, how do you sleep when you're crippled inside? I don't know. Maybe we should ask Brian Wilson. Gavin and I are just like everybody else, looking for a place on the tree. I'm 63, and I wish we were grown-ups. It's called Keith. Thank you. Keith. Keith Richards rolled a five pound note and snorted a sample of his father's ashes cut with a line of pharmaceutical grade cocaine. His father tasted bitter, but he burned like a Viking ship, inflaming the nasal passage, causing Keith to bleed a bit of English blood, maybe just a drop or two on a cocktail napkin as he bowed his head to the bar and allowed his father's ghost to expand like a cloud in the otherwise hard blue sky. Thank you. My dad lives with us now. He's going to be 93 in November. He has dementia, and he has Alzheimer's, but it's recently diagnosed. My mother had more of an early onset of Alzheimer's, and she started really seeing the effects when she was like 60 or so. And uh, it's really sad to watch someone just deteriorate like that mentally. Um. This is kind of an odd poem. Um, When my mom died, she actually, she had a young attendant ask her to get up, someone who was fairly new at the job, asked her if she could stand by herself, put her on the dresser. When she removed her diaper, my mother kind of forgot what she was doing and where she was because she was at the later stages of Alzheimer's and she just fell. She hit her head on the threshold. But my mother had been just taking her meals from a straw, like in a can, the, the, nutrition like drinks and she'd forgotten how to use a fork and when she talked the last time I saw her all she would do is repeat uh, look at the purple flower very quietly and it was a plastic flower except when I was introduced to her nurse very quietly she said how do you solve a problem like Maria because that was her name but she didn't talk much she was very passive but she became very loud and aggressive asking for a fork it all came back for two days and then she died And when I started writing this, you know, sometimes you sit down without intent. You don't know what's going to come out. You just start writing. But it was on my mind, so I kind of took that voice in this poem, uh, which I don't explain in the poem. But at any rate, it's called, uh, For the Attendant Who Changes Me. It used to frighten me when I tried to remember what was there before the bird flew away. I stare into the blankness where words were. Wall. I remember. They call that thing a wall. Stand, she says. Can you stand by yourself? I don't always hold on to the thing. I can't let that trouble me. It comes to me, this thing, where my things are. My things are there. She is going to dress me. Now I remember this thing is called a dress. I nod my head and speak. It comes out weaker than a whisper, but I don't know why I said yes. I meant to say dress. It takes a long time for a word to illuminate and disappear before it gets out of my mouth. Some things can't remain in words. Sometimes I cup the word and swallow it like a pill. This time I said it. I said yes. I don't know why I said yes when I meant to say dresser. My voice is going away. I have thoughts sometimes, and I'm staring at the wall when she rips the tabs on my diaper. I'm wearing a diaper, I realize, and the wall begins to move sideways. I'm not holding on to anything as I walk on the beach with my hair on fire. The wind is blowing on the flames, but they don't go out. I dive in the water, but I stay in the air, and I'm surprised how easy it is to fly over the rose bushes. My cheekbone barks like a dog. I feel my face crack like a spider web. My cheek begins to whistle like a bullet hole in a pane of glass. This is just like that movie I saw where a guy got hit on the noggin, and the words came back. I'm better now. I remember everything. This girl is frantic. I'm staring at a ceiling. I'm lying on the threshold to the bathroom and I start talking to myself. I say, I am so hungry I could eat a horse. Where did that come from? Why did I say that? I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I don't eat meat. <laughs> Note to self. Be thankful for the dishes waiting to be washed. Be thankful you are not alone in your car unwrapping a meal under... I'm sorry, I just got dry. Let me try that again. This can be edited. Note to self. Be thankful for the dishes waiting to be washed. Be thankful you are not alone in your car unwrapping a meal under parking lot lights. Be thankful you can feel the pain that stabs your back when you rise to meet the day. Be thankful when you put on your own pants one leg at a time because nothing lasts forever. The day is coming when you will no longer be able to tie your own shoes. You will know something is wrong, but you will not be able to recognize your own hunger be thankful she is there for you, to feed you, forgive you, and remember your name after you have forgotten hers. Blood moon. One of the reasons that, that being on Moontide Press appealed to me is there was a year where every time there was a full moon, I went out and sat in the backyard in a lawn chair, unless I, one time I was in an airplane, one time I was in a dorm. But usually I'd sit in my backyard and just write whatever came out. And at first I wrote about the moon, but after a few months, I started just, I don't know, digging deeper, maybe writing things I wouldn't have written otherwise. "Blood Moon." "Today was sheltered in a marine layer. We waded through a sea without shadows. Today, I made a donation for the funeral of a friend killed by a drunk driver. I watched a mouse escape from my dog. I watched pink feet, a black fur blur scrambling across the concrete with its tiny life. Tonight, I saw the moon poke its face out from behind the clouds as a black mist rose up like a cape to cover the chin, the lips, the teeth. Lori asked me, does the moon always show us the same face? Does it sometimes show us its other faces? I don't know, I said and marveled at how the clouds had misshapen the moon's skull until it looked dented and pockmarked like it had been kicked and kicked repeatedly. Feral kittens under my house began to yowl. My dog ran zigzags and barked and barked and barked. A mouse squeezed her body into a hole in the brick wall, a tight passage, small as a pencil spine. Then it was gone. No light twinkled. The moon turned dark as a dime. Drop down a slot. Thank you. Uh, the one I wrote in April is a long one, and uh, I think it'll speak for itself. It's going through a hard time. April one. It's been a while since I spent my time staring at the activity outside my hospital window, a seven-story window facing a parking lot below, a window that would not open because nurses never know when a patient will discover how they really feel. Two, I took long walks down short hallways lined with beige doors, walls interrupted by neutral art. Fruit in baskets, earth tone landscapes, calm colors captured in whitewashed frames. There was always at least one cop sitting on a folding chair at the end of my hallway outside of a patient's door. I never found out which side of the law that patient was on or what sort of a secret those cops were guarding. Three, my constant companion was an antibiotic drip bag hung from a metal pole. We took walks together. The nurses kept moving my IV needle. One by one, my veins collapsed. I was bruised on both sides of my wrist, and one morning the nurse missed a vein in my right hand. She pierced a nerve. The electrical current pricked a path up my arm and out the back end of my elbow. I watched my hand puffed up, When I could no longer make a fist, I called for the nurse. She was kind to me. She removed the needle. She told me she would give my veins a rest for an hour or two. No longer tied to an IV pole, I put on pajama pants and a t-shirt, grabbed a $5 bill from the nightstand and headed for the elevator. I rode it to the first floor where I bought a cup of coffee at the gift shop. I stepped outside and looked up. I felt air touch my skin. Have you gone without food for days? Do you remember how it felt to eat? Standing outside was that kind of good to me. A woman rolled up in a wheelchair, she waited at the curb with a newborn in her arms. She made cooing noises and adjusted a bank <clears throat> She made cooing noises and adjusted a baby blanket while an attendant stood behind her. A young man entered the glass doors of the building. A Mylar balloon festooned with flowers followed him. I tossed the remainder of my coffee into the trash can. I also went inside. When I returned to the seventh floor, things had changed. The nurses began watching me. The nurse who had been kind to me wheeled an IV stand into my room. She silently pushed an IV needle into my neck vein. Then she taped a plastic tube to my shoulder close to the collarbone. Four. Four. The plant was down, so we weren't taking breaks. The bosses were working us as fast as they could. We were dripping sweat. We were smeared with machine oil. Four of us disassembled the shredder, removed steel plates, and stacked them on a pallet raised on forks to knee height. Each plate was one inch thick. The edges were sharp. They were heavy. We could barely put four on a pallet layer. We dropped one plate at each corner of the pallet until the four stikes were Four stacks were 20 plates high. When I dropped the 21st plate on the corner closest to me, I turned my back on the pallet. I heard the pallet break as 20 grease steel plates slid through the air and collided with the back of my leg. The top plate made a cut into my right calf. It made a triangular flap of my meat. I was in shock. I could see my tendons. The company doctor gave me 25 stitches, one bottle of pain pills, and a note which sent me back to work. Things went from bad to worst. I left that job. Now I talk to doctors, therapists, and attorney. They ask me about my pain on a scale of one to ten. They ask me about my ability to perform my job. No one ever asked me how it felt to stop dancing. Five. Thank you. I'm sorry it's not over. This kind of shit's never over. It happens all the time. Five. The woman in the next room never left her bed. Her door was always open. She had a lot of visitors. On the sixth day, they came and went all day, a parade of weepers. On Sunday morning, the bed was made and the woman was not in it. The parking lot was empty. I sat in my room with nothing to distract me. I can only read books for so long. I need to learn to sit and feel. Six. Now I have time to spend with my dog. She is always sitting on my lap, protecting my body. I don't have to tell her. She knows where I hurt. Tonight she is sniffing the air, keeping a watch over every inch of lawn. I stare at the full moon. I am not feeling pain. I have a good dog. I tell her that, several times a day. It gives my 15 minutes of fame,
0: bye-bye. No, you have to stay up here. Oh. No, yeah, pull up the stool. One more time for Daniel McGinn. <clears throat> I think I was very excited to hear you guys read, so I didn't do some housekeeping, like explain what the show is. Where So there will be people reading, and then I run up here and pepper you with questions about what you just read. Okay. Um, so I hope you're prepared I'm for prepared that. I'm for
1: the questions, no.
0: I believe in you, Daniel. I think you'll do all right. Other housekeeping. Oh, the audience can ask questions. Randomly, I'll turn to you and say, anybody got a question? If you don't, I'll yell at you. My fault, not yours. It's just kind of my thing. Let's kick it off with endings. I'm very interested in how you approach endings of your poems because I wish I had time to scribble down the ending of the poem about your mother. was very impactful. And then an older poem of yours, Dinner Date, the last line in the poem is... The only thing she knows is she's not going to kiss me, not after watching me eat. So that you have like these little like humorous or gut-punchy endings. Do those surprise you as you write the poem? or
1: I think that there's really three hot spots in a poem. Probably my weakest of the hot spots is the title. Mm. But I had an editor, uh, William Swain, when I was writing for the OC Weekly, I wrote an article for him, and he picked it up with his coffee. He read it for, couldn't have been 20 seconds, he handed it back, and he said, I won't print that. Well, I was upset because I spent a lot of time on it. It was, you know, several pages of article. And he said, you have three lines. He said, with my readers, you have three sentences. And if you don't have me, I'm reading the sports page. I'm, I'm not going to be reading something about poetry. And I've always remembered that. And I, I've noticed like at open readings too, mm-hmm. a person has about three lines to engage me. And if they haven't got me, my mind will begin to wander. So I feel like that very opening stanza is critical. And the ending is critical. Uh, so there's three spots, hot spot, beginning, and ending, I think, are the most important parts of the poem. So sometimes, if there's something that I see works, like when you're in open reading, that might become the end of the poem.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, because it's strong. There's also a book Alexis recommended where they talk about the turn, where it's nice of it that you can kind of have a little bit of a surprise at mm-hmm. the end. So talk about open readings. So do you uh,
0: kind of workshop your poem at readings then and, and edit to
1: how the crowd reacts? I listen to how the crowd reacts. I don't know if it's that much of a, an intentional method for me, but yeah. I mean, it's not like I, I go to an open reading and think I'm going to edit this poem. Right. But if people laugh at something that's sad or, or you know, I might edit a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I do react to the give and take hmm. of, of a live reading, but until you mentioned it, it wasn't a conscious thing. Right. I guess I brought it up, but I you didn't did. know I do that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's cool to like that you naturally kind of respond to the crowd. So
0: I guess, when you're sitting down to write a new poem or collection of poems, how, how present is a crowd in your head? Or do you try to just get it out for yourself first?
1: When I put this together, my last book, uh, was I felt really well-received by a lot of people. I wanted very much for it to be kind of like a sequel, but not the same at all. Mm. Kind of like when you, you ever buy an album by a band and it's so much like the last album, you just uh-huh. don't like it. I didn't want to be that kind of a writer.
0: So is it um, themes or techniques that make it the sequel? Or what, what, what connects the two? I think themes
1: remain the same. Yeah.
0: And what, what do you think themes you keep coming back to?
1: Uh, or is it the in the title? My lover, my mother, and the dog. Uh, actually, that comes from Brendan Constantine introducing a poem. He said, you know, people say you should avoid the word I in a poem. He said there's a lot of things you should avoid that have just been written around so much. Uh, the moon, your lover, your mother, and I wrote it down, and <laughs> that became the title of the book because I'm guilty of every one of those sins, yeah. including excessive word, you know, the word <laughs> I. I write about myself, but it's not its not always literal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do write about personal experience, but I do take poetic license. I use what Rachel McKibben's once called an honest lie mm-hmm. a poem should be an honest lie you can lie all you want but and I, I try to find something underneath my experience that would be universal that other people can relate to maybe have experienced right. a real. Re- I mean everybody even if they don't have a mother has that mother figure
0: mm-hmm. right? what is it about the moon what does the moon do for you
1: I, don't, I mean how do you answer that what is it about the moon uh, she's beautiful Maybe it's because I'm a cancer. Uh, somebody actually, another poet wrote that they were doing that. And I said, oh, that sounds cool. And I started doing it. And I sent him the first couple of poems. He didn't react at all. But I continued to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. I guess I didn't need his reinforcement. But um, I don't know what it is about the moon. I, I... Right into the mic if you get for the recording. Later. I don't know what it is about the moon, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Let's see. Ooh, booming. Mm-hmm.
0: Tingles into my toes. Uh, cancer, what, uh, when's your birthday? I'm a Cancer as well.
1: Uh, July 4th, 1953. Happy week birthday. Thank you. Get from it. And it's your birthday too? On Saturday. On Saturday? Days, yes. I'm having a birthday party on July 7th at Pondwater, if Excellent. you know where that is. I not. Uh, ah, it's in Covina on Facebook. Type in Pondwater Society. <laughs> I, you in know Dumb you're Albert. inviting all these people too. I hope, the, I hope okay, you good. come. All
0: right. <laughs> I hope you come. So pop culture in your work, it seems that music is, very, is an influence in you. There's the Beach Boys versus the Beatles and then the next poem, talking about the Rolling Stones. Uh, what is it about music or that, that era of bands?
1: I think that coming from the generation I came from, I, I think probably I was as much influenced by Bob Dylan as Dylan Thomas. Uh, I get a lot of... uh, I'm a person who listens to the words. Mm -hmm. So I I think all my poetry has been influenced by that generation of music. I mean, Paul Simon has said he's not a poet, but I would tend to disagree. Why do you
0: think there are so many musicians who, who try to kind of avoid the poet label?
1: Maybe they revere it. I mean, if I were to write a song, the structure would be different. There'd be a great deal more repetition. I would try to find a cliche or a hook line that would be kind of unusable in mm-hmm. poetry.
0: So there's a freedom in the cliches of music that, that poets should avoid then?
1: Well, you, I mean, poets can do what they want, but I think right. if a phrase has been used a lot, it's not very original for a poet to just employ that as opposed to try to say it in, in mm-hmm. a more interesting sure. way.
0: Uh, I'm, I jump around a lot. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh,
1: I do too. <laughs> um,
0: there, I noticed... In the, the Beach Boys versus the Beatles and in the poem about your mom, that confusion and communication are, are themes for both of, of characters in both of those poems. Yeah. Is that a theme that comes up a lot throughout the yeah, book? Yeah,
1: that's a theme that comes up a lot in my life. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely in my poetry. Although, again, I, as soon as you brought up, I went, yeah, I recognize <laughs> that that's there. So not that's, intentional. I think it's just there, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just there. In in putting your
0: collection together, are there stuff you start to notice that you didn't even realize was bubbling up while you were writing
1: initially? No, but I had one manuscript put together, and and only half of that manuscript is in the present book. And there were a lot of things I felt like, ah, these aren't really poems. Mm. That became really, once I began to include them in the book, it became a better book. I mean if you put together a book, the poems do speak to each other. So it's a process of elimination. There's been, between the book that was released in 2011 and this book, there's been several drafts of this. But I like the, I feel it's concise. I feel like every poem fits. I don't Mm. need to plan a set. I can just open and read from anywhere.
0: Is it it reading aloud or just reading and rereading how how you figure out what works and what doesn't work? I I, I don't know how to
1: answer that question perhaps both with this book I, I used an odd method I uh, they were in line breaks but I came to the realization that a lot of these poems when I write sometimes I'll write on a computer and when I write on a computer it wants to edit for me and I tend to write in long breaks and I move stanzas as I'm writing mm-hmm. I write more with a pen because I leave it alone and I'll write in a block of text mm-hmm. sometimes sloppy and fast and when I do that, my tendency is to try not to look at it for a week before I change anything. Okay. So they're two different methods. But then when I looked at it again, I said, okay, I'm putting line breaks into these things I've written as blocks of text and looked at each one of them and also the ones that are written, everything I just wrote out again as if it were prose. And if it appeared to be more accessible, And nothing was in gain, say, within jamming or pacing or whatever reason. If nothing was being gained by line breaks, I question why I'm using them. So there's a lot of prosaic pieces in this. I still consider them poems, but they're shaped like prose because I thought they were easier to read and more accessible to to people. How, How do you feel, I guess, in your own work
0: or in, like, poetry, capital P in general, that balancing, like, accessibility versus making the
1: reader dig for it a little? I... It's my daughter. Somebody asked me what's your voice. I said it's quiet. And she said, No, 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 you're a storyteller. She corrected me. But yeah, I think that's part of it. Even if it's a little on the surreal side, I think it is. I, I want to be a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So, by that end, I do want my poetry to be very accessible. I want someone to enjoy it. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want them to read it and go, oh, shit. He's been to college. I don't know if I can read this. You know, <laughs> I, I want it to be just a pleasant experience, yeah, or sometimes a depressing experience or a sad experience. Not as ne- pleasant's the wrong word. Accessible's the mm. word. Well, a lot of my poems are very sad.
0: Pleasant and depressing, and it kind of mixes. Because you peppered humor, even in the sad ones. There's pleasant
1: moments. I opened with moments. the Beach Boys poem. That's a Derek. You had Derek here, Derek. Uh huh. Yeah, Derek Brown. Because he told me don't ever open with like the dead mother poem. So <laughs> I turned to that and said, Oh, I'd like to read that. Why don't I find so I open with something a little more fun? Nice. Yes. I um, tend to go there. Yeah. And it's not wise to introduce yourself. It's like on a like on a date, right? Right. You know, Hi, nice to meet you. Let me tell you about my dead mother. It's not a good way to <laughs> open the conversation. No,
0: after the like the moose boosh, then you can start talking about it. whatever dead you mother want. Yeah. Forty one years of marriage, what's the secret?
1: I think the first thing is we were friends from the get go. So we're still friends. I think, you know, I say every seven years all the cells in your body are changed, and every seven years you're kind of married to a different person. So I think tolerance and just accepting people for who they are mm-hmm. and letting them continue being who they're becoming yes. probably keys. It's not, it's hard. Yeah. But I mean, it's hard even if you've only known the person for a year or two. It's uh-huh. just maintaining a relationship's not easy. Right. It is a give and take. And it is, uh, I don't know how people do it if they aren't like tolerant of changes in each other. Because people do change. And, and I'm not the person my wife thought she married, unfortunately. <laughs> She's still there. It amazes me. Yeah.
0: Audience, any questions for Daniel? Oh, come on. It's okay, I got... So, a thing we do is the guests ask the future guests questions, even if they don't know who they are. And so, right now, start noodling a question for the next guest. You have the luxury of knowing who that goes to, because she's going to read right after you, tonight. Oh. So, right now, start, start noodling a question in the back of your brain for Alexis. But a question I, I dug into our archives, because Pub- Moontide publisher Eric Morago has been a two-time guest on this very podcast. He did an hour-long version two years ago, which is how we met, and then he did a live one a few months back. And so his question for a future guest was, what's the strangest place you've ever written? I don't
1: know if it's a strange place, but is there time for me to actually read the piece? Hell yeah. Okay, with people sitting in the room, I was in Puerto Rico, and Mary Ruffell and Richard Mann were hosting this group of students in Puerto Rico. And I started writing this poem, and I could not stop crying, and I wrote it anyway in a room full of students. And I got some odd looks, but it's called, and it, it, this was like written the week my mother died. So here we are, Back at the Dead Mother, it's a theme in the book. It's haunting, you know, when your mother goes. There's Ralph Angel has a line in a poem that says, no one is less prepared than you for the death of a parent. And Yeah, that's true. Running away from home. Over my shoulder, perched in a tree, my mother was watching me. I looked back and said, why don't you leave me alone? I knew she could hear me. She always acted like I wasn't there. Go away, I said. And I began to cry with a voice that wasn't mine. That frantic woman kept throwing herself against the bars of my cage. I kept walking. I looked down, not up, when I talked to my mother. The air was full of feathers. I was full of me. I could not let her in.
0: Thank you. Yeah, give it up for Daniel. Do you have a question for the next poet? It could be as easy as favorite breakfast cereal.
1: God, she's amazing. So, um, Well, in terms of, I mean, God, I, I feel like I know her work pretty well. Okay, Corny, uh, who's your favorite writer? Who's your favorite writer? All right. And then
0: can, where can people find more about you? Where can people find more Yeah, for about the, all me? the listeners on the internet, where can they find more about you? you Website? Can, you
1: could make friends of me on Facebook. I'm not real big on social media. Uh, I'm, I'm really bad at selling things. I, I really am not very... that, And I think it's part of being a poet is being able to sell mm-hmm. things, but I'm, I'm really not very good at that. But I, I am there, and you're going to find a, just complaint after complaint about the current administration. It's a horror show. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, if you want to talk to me, you can message me there. All
0: right, and then we can find your work at MoontidePress.com. Yeah. All right, give it up okay. for Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Our next poet of the evening is Alexis Roan Fancher. I should have asked how to say that last name before I said it out loud upstage. Yeah? Nice. Nailed it. Alexis is a compulsive writer of erotica, an irreverent photographer, and a lover of all things bent. She's the author of How I Lost My Virginity to Michael Cohen and other heartstab poems, State of Grace, The Joshua Elegies, Enter Here, and Junkie Wife, the story of her first disastrous marriage, published by Moontide Press. Alexis has published in journals all over the place, and since 2013, she's been nominated for 15 Pushcart Prizes, one Best Short Fiction Award, and four Best of the Net Awards. Alexis is also the poetry editor of Cultural Weekly. Please welcome Alexis Rohn-Fancher.
2: I met Eric Morago when I submitted work to Moontide Press last year uh, for this anthology, Lullaby of Teeth, and he very kindly took of my poems, and so I'm going to start with a poem from this anthology. Uh, It's called Complicit. One, mosquitoes copulate against my screen door. When I flick at them, they float further down screen, still fucking. I've known men like that. Men who turn disaster into opportunity, call it Kama Sutra. Two. Yesterday my ex calls, another crisis, I can't stop listening. Three. Every time we see each other, it's like we've never been apart, he says. I have no idea what he's talking about. Four. Four. He steps into my personal space like a virus. Five. On Spring Street, there's a dead rat on the sidewalk with stiff paws and a foot-long tail. Six. We decide to give it another try. Seven. The mosquito zapper in the bedroom sparks and sizzles. Eight. That joke about... Marrying a schizophrenic, fuck a different man every night. Nine, in the morning, my ex is so up in my face, he could lick me. Ten, the rat is on the sidewalk, still dead. (laughs) I'm going to read from Junkie Wife, which... uh, I was talking with my husband on the way over here. Uh, The term junkie came from William Burroughs' book, Junkie. When I was first married, my first marriage, uh, the guy back there is number three, going well so far. (laughs) 18 18 years in? Yeah, I think this one's gonna take. Um, My first marriage was a disaster and this book kind of lays it all bare. I don't believe in being a victim in my life, I believe in owning my actions and writing this book helped me to own what a fucked up person I was during this marriage and to take responsibility in a, in a whole new way. I'm going to start with um, the first poem in the book, it's called Flirting with Death flirting with death, a love poem. One, in love with the rush, not the high. I'd shoot up again and again. He was a born rescuer, I was perfect. A bottomless pit. We sniffed around each other like dogs. It takes one to know one, he said. Two, before we went to bed, we went to dinner. He kept hold of my right hand. I'm afraid of overdosing. I confessed over coffee. His voice had a nasal quality. Marry me, he begged. Three, in the beginning, we were fierce lovers. Four, shoot me up, he'd plead toward the end. But I wouldn't. He thought it meant I loved him. Five, I didn't. I wanted the drugs for myself. Thank you. The lovers on Pfeiffer Beach. I don't think you saw them, scant feet above us, sheltered in a hollow below the cliffs, like watching a porno film, the way she sucked her her surfer's lovely cock his lush, let me start again, yeah, The Lovers on Pfeiffer Beach. I don't think you saw them, scant feet above us, sheltered in a hollow below the cliffs, like watching a porno film, the way she sucked her surfer's lovely cock, her lush blondness shimmering as she dipped her head, his hard body illuminated in the harsh morning sun. We were sitting on a blanket, sucking Stoli straight from the bottle. I pointed them out on the cliff, but you were too busy with your phone. No service, you groused. You were always someplace else. I watched over your shoulder as he turned her to enter from behind, his big hands cupping her breasts, his tireless ass thrusting, thrusting. Jaggers, I can't get no satisfaction, kept playing in my head like our theme song, the one you couldn't hear. When I pocketed your phone, you asked me to marry you again. On the cliff, the lovers shuddered, broke apart, then embraced. Their blonde congruency so at odds with our mismatched desires. Above us, kamikaze seagulls circled. They threw their heads back and screeched. You reached for me, but I was not yet drunk enough. I would never be drunk enough. On the cliff, the blonde pressed her naked breasts against her lover's chest. He stared over her shoulder at me, his eyes a dare. Then he put his hands to his lips and blew a kiss. I caught it in my mouth. I handed you the phone and started down the beach with the bottle of Stoli, his sweet kiss languishing on my tongue. Thank you. Why I prefer injectable narcotics. The truth that impales me each time I get straight. It's all cake once I've found a good vein. I surrender to the dazzling foreplay, loosen the belt, ease back the plunger, watch my blood flood the syringe, the gasp the The breath catch just before I jam the plunger down, just like you plunge into me, my cheeks flush. And the rush, the ride, the afterglow, better than sex, correction, better than sex with you, I mean. (laughs) Thank you. Keep walking, on Las Palmas Avenue approaching Hollywood Boulevard, I hear a scream. In the spill of the porch lamp, the girl looks 14, cowering in the courtyard of this windy night, cheap stilettos stemming her pale legs up into tiny shorts. Two men the size of refrigerators slap her face like she's meat that needs tenderizing. One stands behind her, pins her arms, the other brute yells in her face, You will fuck who I say, when I say. When he pulls back to smack her again, I look away. In Hollywood, the streets talk trash, hold murder in their asphalt, blood in the potholes, used hypodermics float in the gutters, rats dance on the lawns. The girl lurches, stumbles in those five-inch heels, the only thing separating her from the ground. The two men toss her back and forth like a football. Her eyes catch mine. When her pimp sees me, he hollers in my face, keep walking. I'm late. My dealer is impatient. I do what I'm told. High on pot, tequila, fear, I head into the neon of Hollywood Boulevard, keep walking till I can't hear her screams. Thank you. Quiet Candy. After you kicked me out and moved Vicky in, I spilled my guts to the Armenian drug dealer at the Glendale Galleria. He told me he'd fix my Porsche, pay off my credit cards, keep me in cashmere and coke if I'd let him. He'd dress me in silk that grazed my ass, said he liked the whiteness of my thighs, said if I were his, he'd keep me out of the sun. There I was, strung out on dope, all lanky, pale-skinned need. The Armenian drug dealer bought me four-inch Lubutans and a leash, bought me a Stetson to shade my face. I let him move me into his condo in Glendale. The Armenian drug dealer liked to drive the freeways, had business in San Diego and Oceanside and San Juan Capistrano, liked the top down on the Beamer, liked the way my hair whipped in the wind. He liked fucking me in his three-car garage pinned against the hood. He could do it for hours when I'd let him. The Armenian drug dealer liked candy on his arm, quiet candy that was loud in the bedroom. He liked my ass raised on a pillow, legs spread like a gullwing Mercedes. I let him do anything he wanted. He wanted me to tell him about you. I told the Armenian drug dealer how you wrapped Vicky in my mother's embroidered shawl, how you gave her my grandmother's amethyst ring, how you used a rifle to make your point, how you could only come if you tied me up, how you papered our bedroom with lies. The Armenian drug dealer wanted to storm your house, wanted to tie you up with the same ropes you used on me, wanted to rip my mother's shawl from Vicky's shoulders, wanted to take the rifle out of your hands, wanted to bring back my grandmother's amethyst ring. So I let him. Thank you. I'm going to read one more from Junkie Wife, and then I have one one last poem. Um, Why I almost forgave you. Because your eyes were blue as curacao, and your table manners impeccable. Because inside your head I was smooth as Michelangelo's aurora. Because the night was in cahoot with the street lamps and La Dolce Vita was an amusement ride, because the light was saffron yellow in October and the purple irises were not in bloom, because I was drunk on vodka sauce, because I was drunk on you because the gnocchi at Dantana were to die for, because you swore to die before you'd lie to me. But I sucked you off under the table anyway, and the moon hid behind my skirt, and we shared cannoli for dessert, and you didn't know. Ricotta sat cool on my tongue, And the Campari tasted as bitter as love. Thank you. I'm going to read this last poem for um, Eric, who uh, really likes it. This is unpublished because I don't think anybody has the balls to publish it. But um, it's a love poem. It's called Heavyweight, Clear Vinyl, Shower Curtain, Five Stars. I disturb your shower. Fresh towels, my excuse to watch you stand beneath the spray water pouring off your hair, trickling down your shoulders, beating your studly chest. Fresh towels, the excuse for my eyes to linger at your soaped up cock, stiff in your hand. I drop the towels, pull off my dress, press myself into the vinyl, cool to the touch. An inspired purchase, I think. You reach for my breasts, slather your face between the fog, wet vinyl, and me. Mouth, my nipples, grip your cock harder, faster. I reach between my legs for my clit, finger myself to match your pace, your hand a blur. When your blue eyes close, I pull my fingers from inside me, push aside the curtain, slide them into your mouth, watch you lick your lips, grin. Sometimes we see right through each other. Tomorrow, I'll give the shower a five-star Amazon review as the seller, a mom and pop in Idaho, requested. If I'm satisfied. (laughs) Thank you.
0: One more time for Alexis. Why erotica? What draws you to it? The beauty of it? The horror of it?
2: I'm kind of like Jessica Rabbit. I think I was drawn that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I first started writing for publication and first started doing readings Um, I started reading the erotica and and, um, I was in a class that every uh, eight weeks would do a performance and people would come up afterwards and and love the erotica and uh, I mean I also write other things and maybe the third or fourth time I was up I read uh, something very non-erotic about a dead child and um, Afterwards, no less than seven people came up to me and they said, the poem was nice, but that's not what we came for. (laughs) So I learned pretty early on where my bread was buttered. Um. (laughs) (laughs) How do you you
0: keep writing around one topic? How do you keep it fresh? Are there times where like, I've already described a cock that way. Like, how do you make sure it's new?
2: Well, I find a cock endlessly fascinating, but, um, well, certain cocks, anyway. Um, I, I, I don't know how to answer yeah.
0: that. Was putting this collection together, did it feel like a different process than past collections because it was centering on one period of time?
2: The first poem that I wrote for this collection, I did not read tonight, but it's the Dracena plant at the uh, uh, apartment on Beechwood Drive, and... Um, I didn't even know anyone would be interested in this kind of a topic and uh, it ended up being published in Rattle Mm -hmm. and it kind of gave me a clue that maybe I might be onto something. Um, And then the poems came really quickly. Uh, I gave it to my editor uh, and she said, well, it's all here, but you need a beginning and you need an end. So I wrote the first poem and then I wrote the last poem Mm -hmm. and then it kind of came together.
0: How long was that period, do you think, of writing
2: this out? Uh, between the first poem and sending it out for publication, about a year and a half.
0: Wow, that seems pretty quick. Was it kind of a feverish, just like once you unleashed it just came out?
2: Yeah, it, it, it came together very quickly and I uh, sent it to Eric and he liked it and then very quickly after that it was published, so yeah. it was exciting.
0: That is exciting. Is that akin to your normal writing process, or is it, was it quicker than you normally write, or?
2: I write every day for about four hours. Holy shit! It's my job. Yeah. Um, I'm very privileged to be a full-time artist, so I write in the morning from like five o'clock till maybe eleven. In the afternoon, I edit for other people.
0: How do you? Does that discipline come pretty easily to you, or did you have to work at it?
2: When, I, when I, I studied with Jack Grapes. He was the teacher that I, I first worked with. And every, every Wednesday at 9 a.m. I had to have a finished page of writing that I was not ashamed of. Mm. And studying with him for five years uh, taught me the value of having a regular writing practice. And there's really nothing else I want to do. Yeah. You know?
0: do you have any writing rituals, things you have to do before you can begin writing or you just sit down
2: wherever? Or? Uh, when I get up in the morning, I do a 10-minute meditation. I've been doing TM since I was in my late teens. Uh, then I make a big cup of French roast coffee and I write on the computer unlike some people. Um, <laughs> I, I can't keep a notebook. I don't know if I know how to write anymore with my hand. Um, I write notes on my iPhone, mm-hmm. and that transfers right to my computer. So. Yeah.
0: And, and do you consider audiences either physically or the reader later when you write it first, or do you just write to get it out?
2: Well, I think for me, if there's not a reader at the other end, there's something incomplete. I know there are people who write just for themselves, and that's cool, but... I always write with an eye toward publication.
0: What did you edit out of this book? Were there there poems you wrote around that same time period that just weren't on themes so you couldn't get it out? Or how how did you like hone it down to the...
2: While I was writing this book, I was also just writing regular poems that were being sent out for publication. Mm -hmm. This was just really special. This was trying to create art out of deep trauma. You know, because I could very easily have come out the other end not recovered. I could have stayed a junkie. I could be dead. Right. So, uh, good outcome, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Pretty positive outcome by the end.
0: (laughs) And do do you think you, um, like, would this have been an impossible project to tackle earlier? Did you need the time in between that first marriage and now?
2: I don't think... I was a good enough writer early on to write this. Mm -hmm. Um, This is my fourth book. Um, There's two full-length erotic collections and a book of elegies. So all of that happens simultaneously. I I work on four or five different poems at a time. I'm writing a novella. uh, Right now it's a graphic Mm -hmm. noir novella called My Criminal Boyfriend so you know, so I go from one thing to another. Yeah. I'm.
0: Is, is do you find that helping the creative process? Like, if, do you do you ever get writer's block, and then you switch projects, or do you not believe in writer's block at all? Or
2: I had a very influential conversation with the late Ray Bradbury at um, a bar <laughs> many years ago. I just lucked out, and there he was, and there I was, and. When I asked him about his writing process, and if he ever did get writer's block, and I was a very young writer at the time, um, he said no, he said he always has, you know, like something on his computer, and something in the toilet next, you know, a yellow pad next to the toilet, and a yellow pad in the kitchen, and one out at his workshop, and he said he never writes until he's finished. He always knows what the next sentence the next line is going to be, so there's no block. You always know what you're going to put down. And I thought that was good, so I do it that way.
0: When you work with younger writers, if they complain, because I I get what that means, like, philosophically, but if you sit down and you're like, I don't know what to write, is it the, like, leave yourself halfway through so the next day when you have to sit down again you know where you're going
2: kind of thing? Well, I I like to tell people I work with, especially younger writers, to just not get too serious about Mm. anything. And I like what Daniel said about, you know, letting it go and just letting it sit for a while and, and, you know, seeing what happens. Yeah.
0: If you could give advice to your younger writing self, what would you say?
2: Keep a notebook.
0: Yeah, how was, so going back years to, how did the the memory start coming faster and faster once you started writing it, or had you had
2: things written down or typed up from before? I've lived, as the Chinese say, in interesting times. I've had a rather full life. I've been married three times. I'm bisexual and and, um, love women. Um, I don't think I've ever run out of anything to say Mm -hmm. and I just I'm afraid I'm going to run out of time, you know so I just write about my past, pretty much everything I write about has happened to me or or, or, contains a kernel of Mm -hmm. truth, my truth
0: and then because now this is a, a theme I did not expect, but through the night I'm gonna keep asking about marriage because I'm engaged. And I have these older people to, to gain wisdom from.
2: Congratulations.
0: Thank you, so 41 years, and Daniel, third time's the charm for you. What, what what do you think the secret to a good marriage is?
2: For, for my husband and I, it's kind of we'd rather be happy than right. I think that's a really good one. Um, I think choosing well, and again, as Daniel said, allowing people to grow change, um, just loving someone so much that you want them to be really happy all the time and coming from that space. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Crowd, anybody have a question for Alexis? Was poetry what brought you out of being a junkie or was it something else?
2: I'd love to say it was poetry, um, but I think I just wanted to live and um, wanted to live more than I didn't. I think being a junkie was about wanting to die and getting past that with therapy and with having something really important to live for. That's what saved me. Thank you
0: for the question. Daniel, did you?
1: You said I'll cup a gate to my editor. Explain a little bit to who? I mean, I don't have, like, an editor on hand all the time, so I'm curious as to where you
2: got one and how... Well, you go to the editor's shop, and, you, you know, you just kind of pick one. It's like the same place you buy a muse, you know? It's, um, <laughs> um, I've always written with an editor. I have a peer editor, Chanel Brenner. She and I met in Jack Grapes classes in... Uh, Many, many years ago, and she sees everything I write before anyone else. I have a paid editor who is paid to work with me um, and has been since my first book. And uh, I also have several peer editors, friends, mostly better poets than I am, who are kind enough to um, read my work, critique my work. For me, Daniel, it takes a village. I would never send anything out that hadn't been had ed- edited just to death, you know? I go through eight, 10 drafts of a poem. But if you're looking for an editor, um, let's talk. I know people I can recommend.
0: One more, so start thinking about a question for the next poet before I ask you Daniel's question. What, what poetic techniques do you find yourself returning to throughout? Like what little tricks and twists do you think you always go to? Or do you have a set tool belt?
2: I think of myself as a confessional poet, as a narrative poet. I like to tell stories. I like to tell them in a single page. If it's longer than a single page, I mean, it may be 20 pages of writing, right. and you know just notes and, and research, but I try more than a technique. I try to create a distillation. I, I wanna take the entire story and put it into the smallest form that makes sense.
0: I like that. Thank you. Okay. All right, and then Daniel's, oh, we have a question. Did any of the poems (laughs) from Junkie Wife win any prizes recently?
2: Oh, um, Keep Walking just won the 26th moon, Oh, I should know, the, the 26th. Something prize.
0: You're just so well lauded and awarded. No, no,
2: I hardly (laughs) ever win anything. No. Um, The 25th Moon Prize from Writing in a Woman's Voice.
0: Um, So, Daniel's question was Who's your favorite writer currently?
2: Currently, right now. um, I really love Dorianne Locks. I was introduced to her when I was studying with Jack Grapes and it was such a revelation for me because she said what she wanted to and, and I was a beginning poet and this was like 2008 and discovering her work and the freedom she had to just, she made me fearless. Um, and the coolest part is I got to meet her, I got to study with her. Uh, she and her husband Joe Malar stayed with me during AWP. I mean. It came full circle, but I have to say Dorianne.
0: And then do you have a question for the next
2: poet? Mm. What inspires you, Peggy?
0: Thank you, Alexis. Everybody, You're give it one more time for Alexis.
2: Good. Thank you.
0: Our final poet of the evening, is Peggy Debreer. Peggy is the 2017 winner of the Downey Symphony Orchestra Poetry Matters Prize. Her poems have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, and she's author of In the Lake of Your Bones and Drop and Dazzle. A former dancer and movement artist, Peggy teaches E equals MC squared bodied poetry workshops in a variety of retreat and literary settings. She was a program director at a room of her own foundation and continues to curate poetry art events throughout L.A. Everybody, put your hands together for Peggy Debreer.
3: into a space where Daniel McGinn and Alexis Roan fancher have just heated it up. I'm going to begin with a poem I wrote yesterday. It has not been edited, but Hanalina says it's ready. Um, But I like to start where I'm at, and this book was written a long time ago, and a lot has changed in the world. This is called Give Me Shelter, Tell me how tender your age, how brave your resistance, how deep your hungers, how high the price for a pound of your flesh, how much for your tusk on the open market, how sharp your fin in the roiling soup. Tell me how fragile your only known village, How many nights on your flight from home? How tender the night, how tired terror cries out. Tell me your shelter, the hood of your thought, the loss of your cub, the ache in your gut. Tell the only home left in your heart, the wrenching of flesh, even your rosary gone. Tell me your God, tell me your age mother tended to take in, tell the chain link blanket you wear. Where is your brother? Now drugs close your eye. Tell me how tender, how youngster How, mother, tell me how grown you are. Now you are caged and served under ice. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. I will get it edited. Maybe I'll send it to you, Alexis. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to start with the two opening epigrams in this book. This is Drop and Dazzle. Uh, And the first one is from St. Augustine, and it says, In my deepest wound, I saw your glory, and it dazzled me. And from Anne Sexton, Out of used furniture, she made a tree. So I'm going to start with the first poem in the book. And again, it is not a cheery poem. So Daniel, this is completely opposite of the way you started, but my friend Doug Manuel said, it's important to start where you began. This is called Climbing the Moment of Birth. What I might confess are secrets packed like clay into kiln, hardened fast in the bowl of the breath. What I must divulge are pink, sinew soft tissue damage flesh and bone stalled in the act of being what I remember is when fluorescence hit my eyes I was blinded to the room it's dull linoleum metal cabinet the bed Permanence dismantled in a litany of instruments, each in its own tongue. Mothers of Russia and Poland, fathers of Egypt and Spain, spinning out from the lion's mouth, cradling knedla, fleeing pogroms. What I understand is tenderness, rendered hand to cheek, cheek to lung, to breath. The way love presents in a wilderness of birth infirmary dank on a war-tired base under desert skies. The only thing I remember of my birth is the smell of death. So now uh, I will move into, I think... A little bit more lighthearted. This poem is called Periwinkle Permanence and Pain. And it's about really wanting to be recognized as yourself. It has an epigram from Alexander Pope. You purchase pain with all that joy can give and die of nothing but a rage to live. I would ask for blue ink. Elegant and pale as Santa Fe skies, color of my eyes. People feel comfort when a person wears the color of their eyes. A flourish that points to bones because the needle over them is unforgiving. Make mine a paisley splay on fleshy mounds, merely a nod to bones. They carry our canvas upright, birth it low for sleep. Body fluids rise to needle pressure, puncture points perilous and permanent. In the stain of ink that knows my hands are stories to be told. A single artist bears my totem in his squiddy grip. But if I had no fear of pain or death, I would choose a full corset tattoo. Roses in bloom over each hip, a heart of lace below the nape, the garment's gait of stays and bones stippled across my ribs, breasts lifted to admirable heights by the body bustier, tightly laced in a stiffened stricture that shields breath from lung. A firm cinch at the waist, a shine of leather, touch of silk, the claws of net on a bustled bossy posture that cannot be confused with any other girl. And this is probably the oldest poem um, that is in this book, and um, Well, I'll just tell you a little story. When I first started reading it was when I was very beginning my my poetry career. And all of a sudden, all these boys were asking me out to dinner and secretly ordering creme brulee, and thinking that meant the poem was about them. Kama Sutra. You rock my Kama Sutra. With an intensity that awakens my propensity for a tango and the taste of creme brulee. The sweet of your nothings on the nape of my pleasure rarefies the atmosphere and clarifies the nature of my nefarious feminine treasures. Under your spell, I become a creature in the emotionless oceans of smoldering potions, pouring into the channels of my star-eyed nature. I and temporarily blended into the mending together of milk and will of body and bones come bubbling up in anticipation of our one-on-one coming undone in fragrance of two becomes one. Because you rock my Kama Sutra with an intensity that awakens my propensity for a tango and the taste of crème brûlée. Thank you. So this is a poem about, you know, in a relationship when you're trying to figure out what it is, And you know, it's something that you have to do over and again in any relationship, because as Daniel pointed out, we are all changing. This is called choosing the right word. It may be canopy, carpet, canoe, when you're near, I call it safe harbor, rest in the slip. At times, it is tide pools, swallows me random in weightless whirling and falls come spilling double down. Maybe it's a pallet, something to carry us. And all this time, I thought it was a will, spinning, spinning my best beloved Our gold threads stitching up my sheets. I will iron this pain till it's smooth. Maybe it's a room, love, where dust guards dapple the floor, garments strewn about, all the better to know ourselves, the bright details of our skin and the turn of our sleep, vistas that flutter back of lids. Maybe it's a whole house wherein we take our hair off, put on our berries and plumes, wear them out as if we owned the place, as if plush paths were laid open under our feet, step by step. You know, the title of the book, Drop and Dazzle, comes... uh, It was originally The Dazzling. And there's a final poem in the book called The Dazzling. But we were looking for something a little snappier. And there were these um, active shooter drills going on. And I was remembering when I was a kid, we had to drop and cover or duck and roll for fire. And I was thinking about how in love, it's always such a risk over and over again. Ashes to ashes. And this has two epigrams, so please bear with me. The first one is from Lee White, and it says, the world is hurtful and stupid. Don't be the world. And the second is from Ellen Bass, who inspired the poem. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Ashes to ashes. The world wants to bury you under a pile of leaves or an avalanche of snow or news. It doesn't matter. It won't care if your hair is perfect, if you're punctual. Or too late to hold your reservation there will be no excuses when the world wants what the world always wants and the world wants to bury you if you take your hands from ten and two bind your feet to make them small if you roll your points over or move your money to try to make more if you're good at math but poor at finance if you better on others, but never give your love a solid go. The world will weigh you down with impossible possibilities you can't possibly meet. It won't care about your childhood, your artistic statement, or the one from the bank, but it doesn't want to see you suffer, so the world will tell you to go. Ask you not to go. It will unfriend your spirit and cause you to burn like rubber, to hop like a maggot out to lunch. The world will eat you like a snack. It will toss your keepers and keep tossing your losses till you're flat on your back. And when you're gone, the world will bury you again. Or... It will have you cremated for a fraction of the cost. You can have your bones scattered on the mountains, spread out to sea. You can finally forget the world. Return to Earth. okay, Okay, and uh, I'm going to close it on a little poem. There's a set of scenes in here. And this is called The Lovers. I sang to the dream all day, swaddled it in word blankets, but mostly sensation, water, a hand on my belly. The dream brightened in my arms where we slept, burrowed under my thigh for safe keeps. I went to the closet and put on your favorite dress. Even tighter now, I laid down in it, rolled over, held fast to the dream, soldered my faith to your chest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: I feel like that was... The, the listeners really lost a lie. I feel like that was a master class in reading. Your whole <laughs> body was... Just into it, it struck me how lazy I am when I read my work.
3: So um, that word you were trying to figure out, E equals M C squared, mm-hmm. is my way of saying embodied poetry. So thirty years of dancing, like my work, is to try to hold still at the mic. <laughs> you know, um, so that's what you're seeing. Yeah,
0: but it's so yeah. it's so unique and like pulls you in. So that that wasn't a. a Because you you started dancing first, that wasn't a practice thing. You just kind of naturally did that when you started reading?
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I did. I had uh, injuries and I stopped dancing for Mm. a while. And so I came to poetry looking for that something again, uh, that way of expressing all of Mm. that crazy stuff inside.
0: When when you teach workshops or talk to other poets, do you encourage them to take dance lessons to, to loosen up a little when they perform?
3: I don't encourage them to take dance lessons. I think whether or not you dance is a very personal thing. It's a it's you know it's driven. Some people are born writers, you know. And and actually, a friend of mine had to remind me that before I even started to dance, I was writing. Um, so somewhere it is natural in me, but. Um, What I do use is a lot of physical imagery and very pedestrian movement so that people learn how to uh, awaken the sensations even more than we're used to. Writing is about, you know, for me, describing those sensations. And, um, you know, people ask me if I write erotic poetry. And I do to the degree that the physical world is all eroticism, you know, if you're if you're really engaged, if you're smelling the smells and feeling the breeze, and you know, it's all very sexy. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was very sensory and and, and sibilant and, and alliteration as and it was very it felt very sonic and, and music like. And so I think you answered one of my next questions is oh. what what comes first? Is it the words or is it playing with sound?
3: Um That's really a good question. For me, again, it's rooted in the physical. When I start to write, it's always preceded by some meditation. Usually it has some physical aspect to it. I'm locating myself in my emotional world, in my physical world. Um, I'm just practicing actually describing the landscape you know, um, not only my immediate landscape, but then the landscape of the room, and then beyond the room. So that's kind of opening it yeah. out for me, but it starts physically.
0: So is that part of your regular writing practice, is, is meditating first and yes. getting to that spot?
3: It's part of my living practice, because, you know, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you a daily
0: writer as well, like Alexis, or...?
3: I am a daily writer, and there are some days uh, when I'm teaching and I'm really busy, and like Alexis editing for other people, um, where it's a list of the things I have to do in the morning, and you know, then I have to jump into it, but for the most part, I'm blessed right now to have that time to be able to write every day. And yeah, it's about three and a half, four hours, and then I'm, I gotta walk or do some yoga or something else and, uh, and come back to it for editing, yeah. In.
0: what, what theme, I've, I don't know, I'm stumbling over the one question I've asked every poet, what themes do you find yourself coming back to in general or in this collection?
3: You know, uh, my longtime teacher, Brendan Constantine, likes to say that our style comes from what we don't do well. And, um, you know, uh, having grown up the first couple of years on an Air Force base with a severely PTSD father and no mother, um, my early years were very deprived of physicality and and uh, bonding so I write a lot about relationships and not just you know the immediate relationship but where it started where did this you know this way of approaching the world start Mm -hmm. and not just you know relationships with lovers but with friends with um, with work uh, collaborations which is something that I love and and miss having more of in poetry because so often uh, poets work alone.
0: That's I sense that in the, the first poem you read was called "Give Me Shelter." Is that yes. and is that the "Tell the World" that there's that repeated line? Am I mixing poems?
3: Uh, "Give Me Shelter" uh, was just written and it's really in response to the pictures of children that we're seeing that are separated from their families and it's hard to write I think uh, for me about things going on in the world because we have to be careful not to steal other people's suffering Um, but um, I am born of an immigrant family and uh, and uh, my my nieces and nephews are, are married to immigrants so it's it's part of my world. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it felt like a battle cry or a call to arms, yeah. and it felt very—the the, the, the swell of it was was moving.
3: I sometimes feel guilty that I write so much about me because I feel like there's so much going on in the world that I used to affect. And my first book was not poetry; it was a it was a study of nonviolence, mm-hmm. and it took 13 years to study and write and. Um, but I've sort of left that behind as I've come into sorting myself out uh, through poetry. And um, yeah, it's just important every now and again to say this is what's going on in the world and I need, I need to be a voice for that.
0: Uh, writing a more academic book like that, The Study of Nonviolence Versus Writing Books of Poetry, did you sense, did your brain feel
3: different? Completely different. I mean, we really studied, you know. We sat in basements with people that were strategists during the lunch counter, and, you know, we did town halls. And and I was, you know, a political... Um, Yeah, I was an activist, very, Mm -hmm. very... But, you know, I think you can lose your own sense of purpose in working always for others. I think there needs to be a balance, and uh, one of the things about... uh, You know, one of the beautiful things about poetry is that the world needs some beauty now, too. So in the same as I think it's important to notice what's going on and not to forget about it in in our own little pod... Um, it's also important just to bring some beauty, even about horrible things.
0: When you're when you're writing about s- tougher subjects or like rage-inducing subjects, do you try to pepper in and go in and edit in some beauty then to balance it out?
3: I don't do that. I try to make the poem beautiful. I, I try to make the meter and the language and the lyricism uh, beautiful. Um, but I think. You know, there's, there has to be some authenticity. Right. Yeah, and that's where I always stay. I mean, people ask me all the time, are your poems true? Well, not necessarily. They come from an authentic place, and then I let the story um, take right. me. Yeah.
0: Why do you think so many people—I feel like that's a pretty common question. Why is it the first assumption that poetry is nonfiction?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know why. I think because it is in such an intimate space, and because good poets that you're going to hear do come from that deep authenticity. And that's the truth of a poem, not the storyline, you know?
0: I, uh, I'm a nonfiction writer originally, and then I got into poetry, and I got very sick of people assuming everything I was writing was nonfiction because I was going to write about some fucked up stuff. And so I wrote a a poem about being abducted by aliens and talking to them. And I was hoping that it's like, now you cannot expect. Now you
3: can tell, right? Yeah, well, you know, when your family's in the room, it's a good chance Mm -hmm. to get busted. You know, I mean, I have brothers in my poems. I have no brothers. I wrote a poem about my mother and Mandy Kahn, who blurbed the book, uh, wrote a blurb saying, this is what... Uh, Peggy said, and I went, no, that's what the speaker said (laughs) in the poem, and, you know, it did come from a description of my mother, but then I borrowed this whole Jane Jetson thing, you know, that was not going on at my house. So, and it just came through. That's the way that story wanted to be told. Mm -hmm. So, I'm kind of a, you know, Annie Dillard writer. And, and I'm going to try to write some fiction one of these days, so maybe we'll trade some. Yeah, just sprinkle it in there. <laughs> right.
0: When, when you're finished, because you said you've been working on some of these poems in the Drop and, da- the drop and Dazzle collection yeah. for a long time. When, you, when you're finished with the collection, do you try to shove it away and be like, well, now that's done? Or do you still find yourself, when you read it, be like, ah, it could have been that word.
3: Yeah, I'm always to ask Eric. <laughs> He's like ready to kill me sometimes. And there's two there's two words I'm already over uh, in the book. But luckily, we're going to do another edition of this book because we're we're going to add um, we're going to add another chapter to it, which is exciting. But this book, you know, I put it together and I started shopping it around a long time ago and it didn't get picked up and a couple of editors that I really wanted to work with kept it for a long time and Moontide was down because Michael had left and then Eric took it over and you know, so I was really excited that he wanted to do it. There's something about uh, having some longevity with a press and coming back and doing another, another book with the same press so I, I'm, I'm happy that happened, <laughs> thank you Eric.
0: So you have the misfortune of having no idea who the next guest is.
3: That's right. Because
0: I don't know who the next guest is. Oh,
3: but is. you'll have to tell me.
0: But I will tell. I'll send you an email. And be like, here was their answer. Okay. Um, but the question from uh, Alexis is, what inspires you? Is that right? What the question was? Yeah. What inspires you?
3: So, um, you know, many things inspire me. What's going on in the world inspires me. But I would say the bulk of it is kind of sorting things out uh, for myself and and then also trying to guide my thinking, you know, and to find some clarity for myself. I, I often discover a lot. I mean, all of my writing does not end up on the page and get published. A lot of it just ends up on the page. But for me, it's good writing if it starts someplace and it ends someplace else. And there's something I learn or something I discover. And yeah, it's not all like that, but that's when I like it best. You
0: like to surprise yourself. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. thank you. That was a good question. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, a lot of people in my life inspire me. I, I have some uh, good some, some good uh, peer. Uh, that I, uh, peer um, poets that I share my first writing with and um, that's been a really rich experience for me. I
0: think sort of connected that, what, what would people be surprised to find out influences your writing?
3: Um, I think they would uh, be surprised to hear that I don't know. I'm pretty. I'm kind of an open book. I don't know if any anything would surprise Daniel, for example. <laughs> I mean, he knows everything about me already. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I, I. I don't know. Why don't we ask them? What would surprise you to hear me <laughs> r- write about?
0: That's a hard question. Yeah, that's a hard question, I think.
3: (laughs) Okay, well, say it again in another way. Maybe I'm misunderstood. Well,
0: I I guess I was trying to get to what influences you that surprises people. That would surprise people.
3: Probably dreams.
0: What do you love that they don't know about?
3: Oh, I love uh, designing things in wax and casting it into metal. I like things that actually have a product, you know, I used to string beads and stuff like that. Going back to tactile, um, Just something, possible. you know, like when you're a dancer, there's never a product. Once it's happened, it's gone. That's kind of the problem with poetry is it gets written down and people can read it <laughs>
2: <laughs> later, and you
3: know, but no, but I do love that. I love having an actual thing, and that's why doing a book is so important to poets. Right. And you know, this one was five years in the making, so, you know, it's, it's really special when it comes out and suddenly you, you have a body of work. Sure. Uh, yeah.
0: Do you have a question for the next guest?
3: Yeah. Who are you?
0: <laughs> really? I love Who that.
3: are you, really? <laughs> and before
0: you get to leave the stage, where can people find more about you?
3: Uh, Peggydobrier.com, or Moontide Press um, or on Facebook.
0: Thank you one more time for Peggy, for Alexis and Daniel, for Moontide Press and Eric Moraga, who's here in the crowd tonight. Uh, before I get to all my bullshit commercials, Eric, is there any special Moontide Press things that people should know about? Things to look forward to? Things that are coming out? Yes. Yes. Look for poems inspired by the horror genre and entire anthology about that, because you're a horror nerd. Yes. Great. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you, everybody. Thank you to 1888 and Contra Coffee. Uh, We're going to be back July 11th, for those of you in this room, with Penn Center USA's Emerging Voices. And I'm going to teach a podcast class starting July 18th here. Go to 1888.center to learn more. Be well. And as my pal Madonna used to say, all through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my promise. Don't keep your distance.